This is one of those weeks when you just want to keep singing, don't you? Yet I rejoice. Open up your Bibles to Romans 11. Romans 11. If you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in the rack in front of you. Find one there. Please take it. Follow along. Romans 11. A number of weeks ago, we opened this section, starting back in chapter 9, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we noted to begin Paul's thesis statement. Look with me at Romans 9, verse 6. Scroll back for a moment. This is what he proposed. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's it. Now it's true, of course, one could look at the state of affairs in Israel with the coming of Christ. Even as we thought about the remnant this morning, right, in Luke 2, where was the rest of Israel? could look at the state of affairs with the coming of Christ in the first century. You could look at the state of affairs today in this century with Israel and conclude that the word of God has failed. Some, of course, do think that. One could say Israel has not embraced, let alone recognized, their Messiah. Now that, of course, is not true for all of Israel. We've studied the reality of a remnant. A remnant of faith within Israel. The Israel within Israel, as we have seen, that are the children of the promise. Chapter 9, verse 8. They are God's elect, chapter 9, verse 12. The remnant is the one on whom God chose to have mercy on, chapter 9, verse 18. Along the way, God chose to call a remnant from the Gentiles as well. We've studied that. We looked at the fact that God chose to call people from the group that was not my people, not only unfaithful Israel, Chapter 9, verse 25, but also the godless Gentiles, chapter 9, verse 24. Recall the ensuing reverse circumstances then that we looked at at the end of chapter 9. Consider back with me that the Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness attained it, while the Jews, by and large, who were pursuing righteousness did not attain it. The zealous ignorance of the Jew, chapter 10, verse 2, the hallmark of the majority of Israel. As we looked at last week, such reality is not backwards, but it's the very sovereign plan of God, who is not just Lord of Israel, but as we sang already this morning, he is Lord of all. Yet within those groups, first Israel, and then second all other nations, within those two groups, there are a few who bow. Yes, very few, and that is why they are called remnant. They are the minority. And their minority status is regularly amplified as they're set against the majority. Certainly, that is never more true for the Gentile. Like us, beloved, is that not true? We never feel more our remnant status when we're set against the broader nations, the broader world. Minority against the majority. However, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul focuses directly on the remnant in Israel. And it is an important focus because we have a habit of focusing on the majority, don't we? That's where our eyes tend to go. 
And when we do so, we're more led to think that maybe, just maybe, the word of God has failed. When we look at the majority of Israel and how they continue to reject God, we may wonder and maybe even believe that God himself has rejected them. So, has God rejected his nation? Has God rejected the people that he foreknew? Let's continue now in Romans, the start of chapter 11, verse 1. Look with me. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we, as we do each Lord's Day together with one heart, one voice, one mind, we pray that you would place these words deep in our heart. Give us understanding. Give us, Lord, hands and feet to rightly live out their implication, their application. And God, we pray that you would do this, not just for our good, but for your glory. In the name of your Son, the Christ, we pray. Amen. This passage, as you look at it, stands in this section as a key transition. In Romans 9, 10, 11, it's a very important transition passage. It comes after Paul's discussion of Israel's past and present. Remember Abraham, Jacob, and Esau, the evangelism that is needed in the wake of of the good news, and it comes before what we'll see in the rest of chapter 11, Paul walking us through Israel's future, specifically verses 11 to 32, and Israel's corporate return and repentance. More, we will see the implications of a widespread embrace of Messiah in Israel. And as we have been seeing, it is precisely what the Old Testament prophets foretold. So let's begin with a look at the remnant in Israel. That's our first point, the remnant in Israel, which begins this passage today. Let's look at it. Verse 1, I ask then, not only in light, right, of that that we just read at the end of chapter 10, I ask then in light of what? In light of what? All that Paul has been giving us in chapters 9 and 10, right? And we have looked at all of those things in light of the word of God failing, in light of Israel's rejection, and specifically, and here it is in direct context, 
Chapter 10, verse 21, in light of, I ask then, in light of this, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul says, I ask then God's outstretched hands to an enduring, disobedient, and contrary people who continue to reject God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Because it would seem when God's hands are extended to his own people and they continue to reject them, it would seem as though he's rejected them. His people being Israel, the people is a national corporate entity. This is God's chosen people as elected and called in the Old Testament. And you know them as you read your Old Testament as the nation of Israel. This is a good question on the rejection of God, possibly, but before we get to that answer, we need to address a couple of things. Number one, the idea of God's people here is indeed corporate. We can't miss that, especially with the expression in verse 1. It is possession as a nation, as an entity. Beloved, I've said this before in many messages leading up to this one, said it again to a few of you this week. Men, we talked about this this week as well. There is absolutely no doubt, not just what you see is going on in the news in Israel, but we have 1948 and we have World War II, all of these different things. There's no doubt there is something supernatural in the preservation of Israel. That, that's without question, is it not? It is absolutely without question. In fact, by every natural measure, you think of the wars in Israel's history, they should be gone but they're not. There is something about this people. So that collective sense, that collective enduring sense that's spanning generations, right, is what is going on here. What Paul is first referencing, the nation of Israel, God's people, kept by God and belonging to God. That's what's in view here. Secondly, God's people in an ultimate sense can only refer to those of faith and belief. So we see this in an enduring sense, he's preserving an entity, but ultimately God's people can only refer to those of faith and belief, because those are truly, truly his. In the end, God's people, remember chapter 8, verse 19, the sons of God will be revealed individually. However, we do not know who those ones are fully and yet, right? God is still calling out his people, is he not? He's still doing that from the world and yes, from the nation of Israel. Those truly of faith, it's ongoing. But while we do not know individually or fully, we know a majority is coming. How do we know that? We know a majority is coming. In fact, in the nation of Israel, it's the one nation that's promised a majority turn. And you say, well, where are you getting that from? Look at chapter 11, verse 25. Let's just preview. Paul, and this is what he's building to, is going to say this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. What's the mystery, Paul? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, what? All Israel will be saved. We're going to have much more to say about that when we get there. But that's the majority turn that's coming, prophesied in this very chapter. As such, with that in view, they remain God's people as an entity. And Paul asks, even though they are a collective entity of God's people, remaining in the majority, rejecting him, the question stands, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? And the answer is strong and familiar. Look at verse 1. You know this. 
What does Paul say? Most of you have an exclamation mark here in your translation. By no means. Perish the thought. Don't even think it. It's not true. We've seen that before. Strong, strong response. And Paul then, what he's going to do in the wake of the by no means, he's going to give us four lines of evidence. Kind of like subpoints here to this first point. Four lines of evidence that prove that God has not rejected his people. Look what he does here. The first point of evidence that God has not rejected his people is his personal testimony. That's the first one. Back to verse 1. Look at it. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So look at it with me. As exhibit A, that God has not rejected his people, Paul says what? Consider me. Consider me. I myself, says Paul, am an Israelite, physically descended from Abraham. So if there was ever an Israelite, Paul is saying, in one sense, it's me. I'm here before you writing you this letter. Now, there's much more lying behind this defense, so let's consider it closely. Paul was not just a Jew, but consider Paul's testimony given over and over again in the New Testament. For much of Paul's life, his early life, he was aligned exactly with unbelieving Israel, wasn't he? Paul aligned himself with unbelieving, the rest of Israel. And again, recall this testimony that he gives in the book of Acts and 1 Timothy and so on. He hated the way. He hated the way, as it was called, the followers of Jesus. And Paul was not just rejecting Israel's Messiah, as many were, What was Paul doing? We see this as Acts 9 opens. He was hunting them down. This is active rebellion. In fact, Acts 9 1 says he was breathing threats and murders against who? The disciples of the Lord. Now, and this is what Paul is saying, consider me, Romans, me, a converted Jew, one with eyes open to Messiah. I stand in one sense as a remnant myself, as a demonstration that God has not rejected his people. By the way, we could even consider, we could consider the fact that he mentions the tribe of Benjamin. Do you see there? Benjamin being one of the remnant tribes, right, in the south. I mean, that's no accident that he mentions that. I stand here from the tribe of Benjamin, giving personal, personal testimony. So God has not rejected his people. He is saving his people personally like Paul. One Saul, but now the Apostle Paul, bringing good news. Secondly, He presents a theological testimony. So not just a personal testimony, a theological testimony. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul is sure, and let's make sure we see it too, to employ a word here, look at it, you know it, foreknew, that is loaded with import, is it not? We've covered the word itself in chapter 8, verse 29. Those God foreknew, he what? Predestined. It's a word of intimacy, remember? Not a a recall or knowledge of facts. It's of people. God knew beforehand a people. And in that context, those whom would have faith in Messiah, Jew or Gentile. But in the Old Testament, that word points specifically to the covenant people of God, Israel. So Paul's point here in inserting this word is that God would never, and here it is, could never, reject the covenant people that he foreknew, the nation of Israel. It's impossible. God is God. 
he can't reject them. For sure, in retrospect, we understand that the covenant was applied to the nation collectively and, and that not every single individual within that nation right, would be of faith. But we know that to the nation, to the covenanted nation, God has not rejected his people. A remnant within Israel was always present, even if not obvious. And even when the entire lay of the land was dark, filled with apostates and barren, hence the third line of testimony, personal, theological, thirdly, historical. Go to back to verse 2 and let's see this. Paul presents another one. As we continue in verse 2, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Again, as Paul's been doing throughout this section, he continues to go to the law that they would know, the testimony they would know. How he appeals to God against Israel. Verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This is a historical account. Daryl read it for us earlier from 1 Kings 19. In fact, it speaks for itself, and we don't need to go through it all again, but you just need to note the series of events. Of course, Jezebel, right, is Ahab's wife, and she hears what is Elijah has done in the account in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, putting the prophets of Baal to death, killing them with the sword, and she sends word to Elijah, basically, I'm going to take your life. As you took their life, I'm going to take your life by this time tomorrow. Almost putting a time perimeter. And the text says in verse 3 of 1 Kings 19, he was afraid. That's the context. He was afraid. So he's running for his life. Running for his life. So he's fleeing amid not just apostasy and prophets of Baal that him put to death, but from the top down you have Ahab and Jezebel. The entire nation from the governance on down, right, is apostate in rejection, actively. So let's read this again, verse 14. And again, Daryl read it for us, so we don't need to recap the whole thing. But let me remind you of this in verse 14. This is Elijah. After God confronts him, he says this, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. That's an understatement. Thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's Elijah's cry. Now, can we feel this with Elijah? Can we do this for a moment? Yes, we can. That's what it felt like and it seemed like to Elijah. I'm the only one. All of them have bowed the knee to Baal. But here it is. It can feel like it, Elijah. But was he really alone? Now note God's response. And we have to read this again. I continue in verse 15. Listen very carefully to what God says to him. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Credible here, and then this. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So, of course... 
we need to recognize right away, Elijah, you're not alone. But did you catch something else in that response? God says, I am sovereign. He's just He's got all the chess pieces moved along. This is what's going to happen here. This is what's going to happen there. Listen again, Jehu, you will anoint to be king over Israel, right? The one who escapes shall be put to death, and I have 7,000 left. God is completely in control of this situation. Not only, Elijah, are you not alone, but I have everything in place. What a peace. What a peace. So much we could say about this practically for us by way of application. Let's sum it up to this Elijah God says, in light of who I am and what I'm doing, God is saying this to Elijah, the remnant is bigger than just you. Not only the 7,000 then, but notice also, let's not miss this in the account, there's another prophet, Elisha, coming after you. And as we read the account, we see, yes, Ahab and Jezebel may be this, but Hezekiah and Josiah will be that. They bow the knee differently. And then, of course, there will be Paul. Later And here at Westmount, we note the parallel. As we speak of Paul, there's a parallel between Elijah and Paul. Let's not miss this. Ministering in very similar environments, aren't they? Consider for a moment, both Elijah and Paul are set against the majority of apostate kinsmen, aren't they? The majority of their brethren, right, are apostate. Yet both Elijah and Paul, we could say it this way, key salvation historical figures for the nation of Israel. They were confronted in their times with the apparent downfall of Israel and Israel's apostasy broadly. And further, consider what the text wants to show us that both Elijah and Paul were steered toward finding hope in God's preservation of a remnant, a present 7,000 or a future fullness, as we'll see in chapter 11. God says, I am sovereign, and it's not over yet. Yet even further on this point, we'll see the point developed in this chapter that even the remnant through history is even more than that, is an ongoing pledge put forward by Yahweh for the continuing and future fulfillment of Israel's return as a whole. Let's not miss that. Again, we read chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, that remind us that God is not done and God's work is far from complete. History's enduring testimony, of course, give way to the present. And that would be the fourth sub-point we have here. Not just the personal, theological, and historical testimony, the present-day testimony. Look at verse 5. So too, in the same way, like that, so this, at the present time, Paul pulls us right into his time, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant, and note the language, chosen by grace. A remnant chosen by grace. So too, as it was back then at the time of Elijah, so too at the present time now. God has kept for himself a remnant. 7,000 chosen by grace. Paul, Roman believers, a remnant now chosen by grace. And it is true, of course, the New Testament testifies to the enduring remnant in Israel, continued by the grace of God. We open with Luke 2, and of course the backdrop to that is Zechariah, Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of Jesus as the Gospels begin. Later, Simeon and Anna in Luke 2. 
The 12 in Mark 3, appointed by Jesus. The 3,000 in Acts 2, 41. And later in Acts 4, 4, the 5,000. The enduring remnant, right, that persists. And right up to Paul's present time as he writes this epistle. And of course, beloved here at Westmount, right up to our present time. I look out on a room that represents the remnant to this present time. A remnant existing that testifies to God's goodness, especially when we think about as Gentiles, but for Israel specifically, a remnant that exists and testifies to the fact that God has not rejected his people. And a remnant that exists like we do, like the remnant within Israel, as we saw the shepherds do, that exists to go and tell. That exists to go and tell. They're Messianic Jews across the globe, even here in Peterborough, and yes, in Israel to this day. Many of you familiar with some of them that are ministering in the middle of the conflict that call Christ Lord. The remnant in Israel that has not rejected their Messiah, but bows the knee to Messiah. And a remnant in Israel, not a remnant because of their work or reasoning. That's not why they are. What does the text say? Paul, as he stresses repeatedly in this letter, in fact, in all his letters, makes clear the remnant has faith. Why? End of verse 5. Look at it. Because they are chosen by grace. That's what the Word of God says. And what is grace? Paul unpacks this for a moment. Verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace, as we've studied repeatedly, almost in every study that we've done here, because it's all over the Word of God, grace, as we've studied, is the unmerited but bestowed favor of God. As such, grace has, by its definition in nature, follow with me, grace by its essence has absolutely nothing to do with us and what we offer and give. That's what makes grace grace, right? That's what grace is. This understanding is absolutely vital to the gospel. I would submit even more. Because Paul says here in verse 6, if you try to introduce work into the equation, then what happens to grace if you want to do that? Well, it would no longer be grace. It is spoiled, at least in our eyes, right? It's spoiled. The very thing that makes grace, grace, is violated when our work is introduced. Now, this is very subtle. I believe in a room like this, most would say amen and amen. But listen, whether that work is acts and good deeds, or simply a choice, I thought of God, I reasoned my way to Him, and I put my hand up for God. Beloved, Whatever it is that we say emanates from us, or comes from us, or is done by us, if we submit that as something before the Lord, we violate grace, don't we? Grace is all Him and none of us. Zero percent you and me. This is what is often so missed, by the way, in protest to the sovereignty of God. And we have to mention this as we study this passage. If we fight to hang on to our choosing of God, we fight against grace itself. Did you know that? We're fighting against grace and trying to say, I have something. And when we hang on to things and we say we've done things, the implication is I get glory for that thing. 
As we fight against grace to uphold our choice, we miss the very clear teaching, beloved Westmount. What have we been studying in these chapters? Talking to some of you, met with some of you this week, and I just so appreciate your admission. You said, wow, it's plain on the page. I don't like what it says, but I can't deny what it says. Now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? (laughs) Now we're like, this is what it says. And beloved, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's all God, not us. That's why you can have peace and trust. Imagine if we claimed some of that and we violated grace and we wanted to put ourselves on the hook, not just for salvation, but something else. You don't want that. You, You don't want that. It is clear. And let's consider the remnant pictures again so we have this before we descend into chapter 11. Remember Isaac. He, not Ishmael, Ishmael born before Isaac, he, not Ishmael, was the son of the promise. Now why? He was given remnant promise status before he was even born, says Yahweh. Now that is grace. Remember Jacob. He, not Esau, also born first. Esau was not God's elect. Jacob was. Why? Well, remember, chapter 9 tells us, verse 10 again, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau, I hate it. This is mercy. We kept reading in verse 18. Why Jacob? Grace. What about Paul? Remember his work. Remember he was hunting down disciples of the Lord. Yet he's chosen by God, knocked off his riding animal going to Damascus. Why? Why? Well, we know why not. It certainly wasn't because of his work. It certainly wasn't because he thrust his hand up and said, I see you, Lord. No, in fact, listen, beloved. If Paul's choosing Jesus was the measure of his ministry and his stand before God, he would be driving the bus straight to hell, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? Apostle Paul. No, because of grace. Paul was chosen by grace. Paul, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, you, me, Christian, did not work, did not earn, did not reason our way to Christ. No, we are chosen by grace and beloved. Let's hug the text. Let's keep it all grace. It's all him, not us. As the remnant in Israel, all of them, so too all of us saints, chosen by grace. Okay, that is the why and how of the remnant, Westmount. It's all by God's sovereign grace. And it is that same sovereign grace that is the reason God has not rejected his people. Do you see how Paul is tying this together? Well, if it's by grace, by their foreknowing, if it's by grace that he's held them together, we can have confidence that it's by grace. He will see it through to the end. Do you see that? The remnant in Israel from beginning to end, God's own because of grace. That is the remnant. But Paul now turns here to remind us of the rest. And this is important. So that we also don't violate Grace. Turn our attention to verse 7. And our second point, the rest of Israel. The rest of Israel. And not, verse 7, sorry. What then, sorry. What then? 
Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So much here, but I want us to unpack these groups that Paul has before us. What then? Paul asks, and always anticipating the reader's response. He says, what then? One, well, Israel as a collective group failed to obtain what it is sought. What then? Two, you could say, the elect. The minority obtained it, albeit by grace. Three, what then? The rest, unbelieving Israel, were what? Hardened. We've seen that word before. Notice first here that Paul distinguishes, or at least delineates very clearly, these three groups in response to what then? Again, Israel is the collective nation. We've defined that off the top as God's people, as commonly understood in the Old Testament. Secondly, the elect, specifically as God's people individually, as we see unfold in Scripture. And then thirdly, the rest, the majority within Israel, not God's people, and they are the ones hardened, the text says. Paul has already addressed the remnant, the elect, in verses 1 through 6, the remnant chosen by grace. Now, look what the apostle does. He turns his attention to the rest of Israel, because the rest of Israel is what is bringing up the question. The rest of Israel is what is bringing up the question today, right? You look at the rest of Israel and you say, has God rejected his people? So the rest of Israel needs some attention here, as the apostle knows. And what does the, what does the apostle Paul say? He says what? They were hardened, as he lays out some theology of why they're in the state that they're in. Note with me, beloved, he doesn't say they didn't choose Messiah. He doesn't say they rejected him. Both, of course, are true. It is true. They didn't choose him. They reject Jesus. It's true. But what Paul does say, so that we stay in the text, is that the rest of Israel were hardened. That's what he says. Now let's pause for a moment and zoom out. This is teaching about the hardening of the rest of Israel that follows what? Look at Romans 10. Let's not lose the argument here. Because if you confess with your mouth, verse 9, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, just listen to the whole tenor of these verses. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, that's an act of volition, will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Look at verse 13, it can't be plainer. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is, beloved, look at that in chapter 10, man's responsibility to respond to creator. And man's responsibility in general, Jew or Gentile. And he keeps going, look at verse 14, and then this. How then will they call on him in who they have not believed? And notice the order here. It may be chosen by grace, but look at what he says is the instrument of them coming to the Lord. How are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's not miss this here. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, also volitional. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Look at that. Verse 16, they that is Israel, have not all obeyed, that is will. By their own choosing, they have not obeyed the gospel. 
Man, Israel, is responsible for obeying the gospel. That's what Romans 10 says. And, not but, and alongside that, the text also says God hardens hearts. Like Pharaoh, chapter 9, like the rest of Israel, we see here in chapter 11. And while we're keeping Romans 10 in mind, let's not forget Romans 9 too, the entire context of this passage. Remember, God's choosing some and not others. Jacob, not Esau, chapter 9, verse 13. Remember, was not, that was not a matter of injustice. Do you remember that message when we looked at it? But it was a matter of what? Mercy, that he would even choose anyone. Remember, all mankind, that would be Jacob or Esau, Moses or Pharaoh, Elijah or Paul, were all condemned sinners in the womb already. So God choosing by grace even one soul is an act of what? Mercy. And what it should cause in our hearts, this is a good diagnostic test, is joy, not protest. Joy. I didn't want, I didn't seek, I wasn't pursuing, yet I attained joy. Comfort and joy. Not protest. Joy. It's, a, it's mercy. Now listen, Paul has already covered God's mercy. Here, as he must, he reminds of God's hardening. And this is no new teaching in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Remember Pharaoh and Esau, verses 11 through 18 in chapter 9. But it's also no new teaching in Israel. And this is what Paul has been doing masterfully through this account. He doesn't just present the chapter before or figures in history. He returns to the Old Testament directly. Look at verse 8. Paul continues to do this. As it is written, there's your cue. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. As it is written. This verse is taken from two familiar places, as it is written in the Old Testament. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 10. And Moses, the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. Let's turn to Isaiah. Let's do that again. We want to get the context of where Paul is drawing from in Isaiah 29. So turn there with me. The context of this chapter that Paul is pulling from actually reaches back to Isaiah 28, and it's an extended prophecy section of judgment. Yahweh condemns the proud of both the northern majority, Ephraim, And he'll wind his way down to the southern crowning city, Jerusalem. That's what this context is. And recall that judgment. Paul actually dips into this context in Romans 9.33. And you'll see it in chapter 28, verse 16. Remember, also by way of judgment, 28.16, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. But the implication, as we see elsewhere, there are those that trip over this stone of stumbling, Jesus. This comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Well, Paul here goes further into Isaiah, into chapter 29, turn over to chapter 29, and he addresses Israel's center, Jerusalem. Let's pick it up here in verse 3, as he turns his attention to this crown jewel city. And I will encamp against you all around, this is to Jerusalem, and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, 
And you will be brought low from the earth, you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, Jerusalem, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he's eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied, or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he's drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. God giving out judgment all over to the nations coming against them and here to Israel itself, to Jerusalem. And here we see, when we look at this passage, the linking of this judgment during Isaiah's time to the same in Moses' time. So Jerusalem you have this judgment coming against you. It's exactly the same. Paul is tying them together to that also in Deuteronomy, another familiar context. The apostle goes to a portion of the law that he's referenced extensively and keep your finger in Isaiah and go to Deuteronomy 29. This is a portion as we explain the context of this from about Deuteronomy 27 to say about 32, Yahweh outlining covenant stipulations. You know them as blessings and cursings in places. These are the implications for following my law and the implications for disregarding and violating my law. And what Paul does here, let's keep it tight, the stupor from the Lord, remember that back in Romans 11, Paul connects to this. Let's go right to Deuteronomy 29. We'll start in 1 and read through 4. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. So note that this is what they saw with their eyes. But then look at verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In other words, me. You know the works you've seen in Israel, but you don't have you don't have the right heart to receive me completely and fully. And again, here is where Paul is connecting these things together. Israel, you can't see, right? We see the judgment in Isaiah 29 on covenant violation. We see here what's prophesied through the prophet Moses. And then even more, look in verse 4, but to this day... The Lord has not given you a heart or eyes or ears. True to this day for Moses and true to this day for Paul. Recall also while we're here, the new heart needed. If we return to chapter 30, verse 6, we looked at that. Yahweh has to give them a new heart for them to respond rightly, and it comes from the Lord. So see the point, Westmount. The majority of Israel to this day under the judgment of Yahweh. That's the point. That's what Paul is getting at. That's the hardening. Thus he hardens. He is the one who causes the stupor. 
in the book of Isaiah. The blindness, the lack of ability to receive. The, he's the one that gives the new heart needed in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And it is a hardening so that, this is the implication, that the rest of Israel cannot see. Thus, as we go back to Romans, he hardens. And that's the plight of the rest of Israel. Unbelieving Israel. They are in a state that they always have been in and here intensified by God. They are hardened by the Lord. But that's not where it ends. Let me just read, as you turn back to Romans, let me just read you the end of Isaiah 29. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but with not strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. And then this at the end of the chapter. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. Incredible truth of the nation of Israel. And we're going to have much more to say about this in chapter 11. That also a prophecy of these currently hardened. Look at verse 9 and 10. But this remains true. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forevermore. Paul connected God's sovereign hardening to all the writings of old. Did you see that? The law in Deuteronomy, the prophets in Isaiah, and now the Psalms. This is taken from Psalm 69. We're going to look at Psalm 69 as we partake of the Lord's table in a moment. But before we close and head there, we simply need to note the language. Look at verses 9 and 10 as we close this account. This is not only judgment or hardening language, but what is it? Look at it. Let their table become a snare, a stumbling block, a retribution. Let their eyes be darkened, bent backs forever. This is curse language. Curse language. Let their table become a snare and a trap. The very source of comfort, right, and provision becomes a curse. Let their eyes be darkened. Let the portal of light become black. Let their backs be bent forever. Make crooked the straight instrument of one's body. Let it be crooked. This is curse. Like the spiritual sleep, the hardened heart, the blind eyes and closed ear. Like the curse on humanity, someone is doing this to Israel, to the rest of Israel, beyond the faithful ones like David. The rest of Israel set against the remnant is under God's curse and judgment. And the point here, as we'll see in the rest of chapter 11, is this. Is that what God brings, God can remove. Let's not leave without that this morning, beloved. What God brings, God can also remove. And for Israel, mark it, he will. He will. Remember Isaiah 29, we read it. After the judgment, in that coming time, he will. Romans 11 will unveil this for us. This is not a permanent hardening for the nation of Israel. Again, we're going to pick that up next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth in your word, that you are a God who is sovereign, 
in mercy and in judgment. We thank you that you are a God who gives and takes away. You are a God who brings and removes. Father, we thank you. We think even of our own blindness, that it wasn't permanent, that you lifted the veil on our own eyes, as you will for the nation of Israel, Lord. We consider that coming day when all Israel will be saved. So, Father, we thank you so much for this truth. Let us take that meditation now into our hearts as we respond in song, as we respond at the table, and we enjoy the fellowship that you've bestowed on us this day. In Christ's name we pray.